David, we're going to talk about the ESPN University of Arizona college basketball tete-a-tete, but it got me wondering, what would so-called impermissible benefits look like for sports writers? <laughs> A lot of sports writers, they're, the permissible benefits are why you get into it, right? You get to go to games for free. Yeah. You get to sit, sit in relatively good seats. Sure. But I mean, I guess if it was like you're sitting in the press box and, I don't know, the home team had like masseuses there like trying to like butter you I don't know what it would be like what else could they possibly give you yeah that sounds like the open bar in the 70s I'm yeah. thinking of like media in 2017 is so skimpy and yeah, so oh, you know true. pared down that like pens and notebooks impermissible <laughs> <laughs> benefits right here is a fax <laughs> just give us anything without making you pay for it this is the press box on the ringer podcast network Press Box is the media podcast where you're not allowed to regard great moments in American life, the Super Bowl, say, or the Academy Awards, merely as an opportunity to plug your own content. <laughs> we are Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer, and for your Oscars fix, please check out The Ringer's Oscar after-party postgame show, as I did last night. Very good stuff. Yeah, and also Miles Surrey's piece on Oscars, winners and losers. But for this show, David, I've got three topics for you. First, our take on the Oscars, because it's a media event, damn it. Second, we discuss the departure of White House Communications Director Hope Hicks, what that means for the already precarious relationship between Trump and the press. And finally, the FBI versus the University of Arizona by way of ESPN and Mark Schlebach, the one-on-one matchup that's roiling message boards out there in real America. Plus, as always, our overworked Twitter joke of the week, which might involve both the Oscars and Hope Hicks. But first, David, last night's Academy Awards was the first to be held in the giant shadow of the Harvey Weinstein scandal. Can I hit you with a few topics that surfaced over the course of the evening? Go for it. Jimmy Kimmel thought did a pretty darn good job. Sure. We talked about how tricky this was before. I, mean, I thought his maybe his best moment was when he's doing his monologue and then he cuts to he's building to the jet ski joke, right? Uh-huh. But he says what the what the nominees could say in their acceptance speeches. So if you do win an Oscar tonight, we want you to give a speech. We want you to say whatever you feel needs to be said. Speak from the heart. We want passion. We want, you have an opportunity and a platform to remind millions of people about important things like equal rights and equal treatment. If you want to encourage others to join the amazing students at Parkland at their march on the 24th, do that. If you want to thank a favorite teacher, do that. Or maybe you just want to thank your parents and tell your kids to go to sleep. What you say is entirely up to you. You don't have to change the world. Do whatever you want. But with that said, this is a really long show. So here's what we're going to do. Not saying you shouldn't give a long speech, but whoever gives the shortest speech tonight will go home with... Johnny, tell them what they'll win. It's a brand new jet ski! So it's kind of like, I'm nodding at all these things that are in the air, in the world, but I'm building to the jet ski joke. Right. Yeah. That's the way to do it, right? Yes. Because you kind of hit your marks, and really the whole key is to be funny, right? Yes. At the end of the day, Jimmy Kimmel is not the one who's going to address the Me Too moment on behalf of Hollywood and the world. He can nod at it, right? No. He can he can let us know it's in the air. Yeah. But that's going to be the nominees. Sure, and he and he he, sh- he shouldn't do it, you know, especially, I mean, not just because, you know, he's a, a straight white man, but because you're exactly what you said. He's he's the presenter, you know? I mean, or he's not the presenting of awards, but he's the MC, you know, and he's bringing these other people up um, who have more particular points of view. I think this was a good, he did a really a smart job at being pointed and acerbic at times, but for the most part, you know, uh, I don't know if playing it safe is the right word, but certainly he like there was a very comfortable aspect to what he did. You know, relying on bits from the year before, which some people would you know gave him crap for. It did it sort of sort of you know soothed the audience, I think, in a certain way. Yeah, my wife, my lovely wife, made a good point. I thought, which is, she said, if so, somebody like Chris Rock or a comedian, mm-hmm. it's almost like you got to. Here's me, right? Yeah, I'm the star of this show. I'm going to address this. I'm going to wrap my arms around it and deal with it in a comedic way or a serious way or a funny way. Jimmy is a comedian, but he's also a talk show host. Yeah, so he's a facilitator. He's a pass first point guard mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Yeah, so he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to throw this to other people. I'm going to, and just that manner, maybe in this extremely tricky. Oscars environment for a glamorous award show 
Yeah. Who's the better one? And I think that, you know, he's, he probably he probably was, you know, wise enough to see that as the host of a, you know, literal variety show, when you're doing a sort of blown out version of that, then you have to provide what the rest of the entertainment's not going to provide. You know, you sort of pivot in a different direction to to uh, sort of open the floor for other people to have really more poignant moments. Yeah, you pivot to jet skis, as it were. Exactly. Couple notes on him. Charlotte Wilder, uh, friend of the pod, tweets, I'm all for men saying that sexual harassment is bad on a big stage, but there are also funny women who know how to host stuff and can say that too. And like, why not put them up there? Very good point. And a bunch of people made it, especially after uh, after various presenters went on. The other thing about award shows, you mentioned the bits. Right. We're in the bits era of award shows. Right. <laughs> this, I think this started with Ellen taking the selfie yeah. in 2014. Mm-hmm. I like this when people said I think people in the ringer universe said they were maybe a little bored by this or was a little bit close to last year. But see, I like this because he went over to the movie theater mm-hmm. and we have we movie fans, including us here at the ringer have all these up our own ass conversations about the movies, <laughs> these highfalutin conversations, the experience. And we go to critic screenings or those of us who cover the movies do. Yeah. The actual experience of watching movies in this year, United States mm-hmm. is a grubby, populist, weird, deeply weird experience. Yeah. And to go in there and see actual movie fans who had lined up for a screening of A Wrinkle in Time, yeah. I did not actually know was a was a forthcoming movie <laughs> until the bit. Um I like you thought that. the existence of the movie was part of the bit. <laughs> I I like that. I, I think that's good. I wish people who wrote about movies would grapple with the experience of watching movies. So I thought that was actually pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that. I think you're you're exactly right. Uh, going into the movie theater, uh, you know, I mean, it, it was was it was sort of an olive branch in a lot of ways. You see, look at the the way that it's funny because it, it seems like the more. I don't I don't want to go as far as, you know, up our own asses, but the more that like highbrow film criticism uh, has permeated the Internet and the, the Internet, the, the web that we're a part of. It's weird that like opinion coalesces around things like Phantom Thread, which like nobody's seen. Nobody knows what that is. Right. Nobody knows what that is. No, and, Half the people in that theater had never maybe three quarters never heard of that movie. <clears throat> and I think that, you know, um, Cam or K. Austin Collins, great writer, just posted his his uh, Oscars uh, postmortem. And and sort of you know gave uh, I I I thought a really thoughtful um, you know thoughtful credit to the Shape of Water in the sense that it it um, it was the, exactly the movie that Del Toro wanted to make, but it still sort of bridged the gap between uh, you know a groundbreaking um, you know socio political commentary and what Oscars voters are comfortable seeing. Well, that's are interesting. Comfortable, way to think about voting it. for. Because I think Andy Greenwald said on the post-game show last night, wouldn't it have been nice for a movie like Get Out Mm -hmm. to win? Because it speaks to this weird, turbulent moment in American life. I would say, though, that Guillermo del Toro getting up there and self-identifying as an immigrant, right? Mm -hmm. And a Mexican immigrant, specifically. That's not nothing. Uh, I am an an immigrant, like Alfonso and Alejandro, my compadres, like Gael, like Salma. And like many, many of you. And so the- that is also part of this turbulent moment. Yeah. And though the film is fantasy and, you know, as we say, like, you know, kind of speaks to love of film and nerd boy dreams mm-hmm. about I'm going to make a movie about fish sex and all this other stuff. <laughs> there is some there is something there is that is that is part of this moment. That is part of what Donald Trump is talking about. That is part of what we are doing. Absolutely. At this moment in time and, as a nation. And Sean Finnessy wrote about that on the site today, that it's not that, it you know, you can't go so far as to say that this is a failure of some, or of some sort to for, for the shape of water to have won I mean you can you can argue with its argue with it on you know film criticism grounds I guess you can argue with it like you know Amanda Dobbins does because she's uh, you know anti-beast but um, <laughs> but you know I mean I, I, I love that movie I, I thought frankly I mean I don't know this isn't even what we're talking about I think Get Out should have won because I honestly think that's the one movie of this crew that we're going to be talking about in five years oh sure a lot and, of people said that on Twitter, right? Yeah, they're going to say, "Wait, what was the movie that won Best Picture of the Year? Get Out." But came I thought, out? I thought Shape of Water was really good. My hot take on that was that it like tripped backwards into uncanny valley territory. And if that movie had been made, you know, by you know by Richard Linklater with like a fifteen thousand dollar budget and all the sea creatures were like hand drawn animation, it would have won hands down. It would have won going away. You know, like I thought it was almost it almost it looked it was too reminiscent of a Marvel movie visually, and that was uh. its, that was weirdly its flaw. It was too well done. 
Oh, that's interesting. Um, but that's that's kind of near, neither here nor there. I do, I do think that there's a certain comfort that that movie uh, exemplifies, um, probably for the Oscar voters that you saw in a lot of the presentation of the thing. It's just like like the jet ski is sort of the parallel to the shape of water. You know, I mean, it's a very <laughs> it's a, it's a very comfortable place that we can all sort of agree on, and no one's going to complain too loudly. Right, Price is Right references. Exactly. We can all come together as a nation. Yeah. Also, by the way, as a press corps. Yeah. Do we have to care about the Oscars? Do we have to be invested in who wins well, in the Oscars? I know the, the the ringer cops are going to come take me away if I say like no, Oscar no, content it's totally is fine. not. But it's it's funny to me. I feel the old movie critic line was like, "Who gives a shit about the Oscars?" Right. Yeah. So what did the the best movie of the year didn't win? It never wins, and it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. These are just random awards, right? Like, you know, fame and fortune accrues on people who win awards. So we we want our favorite movies to yeah. win, of course. But at the same time, like, do we have to really be invested? I think, I think if there was anything in the monoculture that could that would had that was able to displace it, everybody writing about the Oscars would be happy to be writing about something else, or most people would. But as you know, our world gets more and more fractured, and the me- our media world gets more and more fractured. I know with the Ringer, it's a no brainer. We're going to do a post show. Some of our best writers, you know, dress up and talk about this stuff because they did look awfully dashing. They very, very. They dapper. really did. But but yeah, I mean, I think that it's. I I think that I, your point is well taken. I also think that there's a, you know, t- we're talking about overworked Twitter joke of the week. You could have just like overworked Oscar joke of the millennium, and just like because every year it's the same jokes about the show being too long and the montages being oh. terrible, and it's not even incisive in a way. It's like. I think Sean actually talked about this in the broadcast, but it's a conversation we've had before that it's just like, you know, yeah, the Oscars is long. That's not a good joke. Yeah. You know, and that just feels like something people just think like, this is what I'm supposed to say at this moment. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is what I mean. Last night it was it was kind of people were doing the counter to the point. Actually, I like montages. And there was that one really random montage that started out being about writing. I think it was leading into a writing award. And it just was like good moments from famous movies. Yes. Like, here's something from Jurassic Park. Well, this isn't written at all. This all, is just almost, a picture of a dinosaur. I think every Oscars montage, uh, except and maybe possibly including the, you know, in memory of montage. If you ca- if you start watching halfway through, you have no idea what the montage is. <laughs> <laughs> couple of journalism notes from last night because this came directly out of journalism. You had that kind of amazing and powerful moment where Ashley Judd and Annabella Ciora and Selma Hayek Pinot, who were all victims of Harvey Weinstein, uh, came out together. And Ciora uh, says, it's nice to see you all again. It's been a while. And we found out in Ronan, when the Ronan, one of the Ronan Farrow, excuse me, New Yorker pieces, that she was essentially blackballed from the industry. After having been allegedly assaulted by Harvey Weinstein because people told her she was difficult, quote unquote. Hi, it's nice to see you all again. It's been a while. So, you know, her sort of reclaiming the stage and then I cut to that video that, you know, was uh, was really interesting talking about everything. Francis McDormand. Uh, so talking about sending us all to look up the phrase inclusion writer. Yeah. Another one in that thing. Emma Stone talking about best director and saying these four men and Greta Gerwig. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she introduced, I love that. And then also, you know, just the presence, the direct presence of journalists in the audience, Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey, I believe Emily Steele too, the New York times were actually in at the ceremony mm-hmm. and photographed with Ashley Judd. Right. Yeah. They have become a part of this story and a part of this Oscars as much, you know, really as much as anybody. Yeah, a lot of that was was really compelling. And actually, I think you know, I don't know if this is a, if this counts as a hot take. I mean, we're we're sitting we're sitting here doing meta commentary on the Oscars right now, and and you know, the Ringer has a lot of great posts up, and there are a lot of great writers who have sort of broken down um, what happened on the show. But this is this is the the Oscars in some ways, especially on a night like last night, is a sort of defense of aggregation media. You know, I mean, it's like all you really need all you really needed. Uh, all the, for, to to take away and 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 get the you know get the vibe of what last night was was like you know seven thirty second video clips you're good yeah I used to feel guilty about when I hit the the thirty second video clips if I hadn't watched the movie and now yeah. I'm just utterly grateful yes because I haven't seen any of the movies yeah. basically except Get Out so I'm just like oh thank God you know yeah. thank God now I have at least some idea of what this is. By the way, speaking of aggregation, there's like, you know, the New York Times does that about us in the front page or the second page of the physical paper now. Uh-huh. Just kind of this little thing in there. They were interviewing one of their social media people who was saying, you know, we, when the Oscars come on, I have a lot of our old content ready. 
like our, our reviews and some of the pieces we've written about these actors and directors ready to tweet out, mm-hmm. you know, when appropriately. Yeah, thank, thanks for that. Thanks for the insight. That's great. You're the only media company that's tweeting out your content <laughs> when somebody wins an Oscar. Should we talk about Kobe Bryant for a second? Oh, I don't see why not. So in Saturday's L.A. Times, there's this column by Robin Abkarian when she talked about, you know, raise the issue that I think has been raised but needs to be raised again. It's like, so you, you kicked Harvey Weinstein out of the Academy. A James Franco nomination was a Mm no-go this year. But Kobe Bryant, who was arrested and charged with sexual assault in 2003, Mm -hmm. charges later dropped, uh, reached a settlement with the alleged victim, won an Oscar last night. And, you know, that's funny because that that happened in the old media world, right? Where somebody like Kobe could say, this has been settled out of court. Yeah. I don't have to talk about this anymore. This this is old news, right? Mm-hmm. And one thing we've said during this Me Too movement journalistically is it's not old news anymore. You don't just get to wave it away. Yeah. Right. You don't say, Oh, well, that's all that's all in the past, right? But, you know, I don't think I mean when when is the last time anybody anybody seriously has gone in on that story. I mean, uh, I, I, you see tweets about it. And, I mean, you, yeah. people, you certainly hear people, you know, around the office talking about it and stuff. I don't know, you know, so going in on it is a... Is a um, Re- rehashing it. Yeah, to rehash it. I, I don't, I frankly don't know the answer. Um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's really tough. It's really tough. I mean, certainly, you know, one would, I mean, from what we know, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, chasm between you know Weinstein and everybody else sure. and every and that was and that was you know shouldn't be a point of distraction though no and I think I think one thing that this moment in journalism and in Hollywood and in American life is that you can still talk about this stuff right yeah just because it's old news quote-unquote doesn't mean you can't talk about it sure. I mean I even was struck by Kobe's statement at the time which was although I truly believe this encounter between us was consensual I recognize now that she did not and does not review this incident the same way I did. I now understand she feels that she did not consent to this encounter, right? Which is similar to a lot of the language we've heard. Yeah. You know, yeah. it just happened in 2003 in a very different part of American life. Also, I was struck by the fact that he referenced the shut up and dribble Laura Ingram comments in his acceptance yeah. speech. Yeah. The impossible is possible. Well, I don't know if it's possible. I mean, as basketball players, we're really supposed to shut up and dribble. But I'm glad, I'm glad we do a little bit more than that. Um, thank you, Academy, for this amazing And you and I, of course, took an incredibly dim view of the Laura Ingram comments. I'm pretty sure, though, she, when she said shut up and dribble, she wasn't saying basketball players are not allowed to make documentaries about themselves. <laughs> like that, was, that was not what she was cutting off basketball players from doing, right? That was, so that, that's uh, okay. By the way, one more, last one before we leave the Oscars. There's been so much news in the last 12 months that I'd kind of forgotten about the Oscar Best Picture screw-up from last year. Yeah. This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. Moonlight, Best Picture. Like, I needed to be reminded that there was this magic, enormous moment of television last year. Yeah. Until until Kimmel brought it up and then came back to it with Faye Dunaway and... Uh, and, and Warren Beatty. And Warren Beatty at the end. I just I was almost like, oh right, that happened. Well, and there was yeah, I mean, so and 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 after you know, just talking about the 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 new movies for so long, you forget about all that stuff. You know, it's not just national media, but um, and and I think you could see that in his presentation. I think it was fifty percent like like you know self deprecating in joke, and fifty percent like reminding us that that thing happened, so that then the joke would make sense. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. I mean, and that was the best. That was the best stuff they had. You know, it was, it was great fodder for for humor, but you did have to explain it a little bit. All right, David. Now it's time for our overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious, yeah, that all of media Twitter made it at exactly the same time. Should we just have a just blanket category for Oscar gags last night? That's that's fine like by Kobe me. Kobe Bryant one, Michael Jordan zero. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for the Oscar, anything about Kobe? You know, on his way to the EGOT. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just I'm just going to say that right now. We don't even need to go into those. All right. All right. Our first runner up this week involves J.R. Smith throwing a bowl of soup at Cavs assistant coach Damon Jones. Such an mm. obvious tar- joke target that it got a whole ESPN.com roundup of Twitter jokes. So we can say them together. The Cavs are a super team. Yeah. Yeah. Or simply invoking the Seinfeld line, no soup for you. By the way, you have scraped bottom truly on Twitter (laughs) when you're just doing Seinfeld lines. Thanks to Corey Seidman for sending that one in. Our second runner up and also in soup news, 
You might remember, David, that last week President Trump announced he was seeking to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum. I remember. <laughs> and yeah. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross went on CNBC <laughs> yes. the can of Campbell's soup <laughs> in an attempt to argue that tariffs were no big deal. A lot of jokes, uh, including a picture of him holding the soup and saying, got any weekend plans? <laughs> also, a lot of people quoted uh, Lucille Bluth from Arrested Development saying, I mean, it's one banana, Michael. What could it cost? Ten dollars? You know, just a out of touch person. Thanks to Russ Zimmer of the Asbury Park Press and Danny and Glacey for sending that in. Thank you, That's gents. Great. Also, last week by the New York Times, we learned that Joshua Harris, a co-owner of the Philadelphia 76ers, quote, met on multiple occasions with Jared Kushner. The two men discussed a possible White House job for Mr. Harris. Then uh, Harris's firm lent Kushner's firm $184 million. Yes. That doesn't seem right. A lot of people made jokes about Jared Kushner trusting the process, right? <laughs> and it really wasn't a joke, you know? Um, it's like people, it was kind of people had point A and point B there. Yeah. Couldn't quite agree around to it. Uh, journalist Matthew Zeitlin, who sent this in, noted that none of the jokes were actually funny or even made sense. So thanks to Matt, <laughs> who is by this point, kind of deserves a title, I think. Can he be editor at large of the press box? Can you have a fake title on our podcast? <laughs> that sounds good to me. All right. This week's Runaway Overworked Twitter winner, also involving potentially legally vulnerable members of the Trump administration, Yes, came when the New York Times reported the upcoming resignation of Hope Hicks. So this is a group award for anybody who made a pun referencing Hope Hicks's name, to wit, Hopey Changey. That's for, <laughs> by Abari Weiss, another subject of this podcast. Wow. Hope Abandon. Hope Hicks is resigning to spend more time with her Mueller. <laughs> I think the best perhaps comes from Cleo Chang's splinter headline, Hope You Had the Time of Your Life. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of an overworked joke. It's actually funny, right? Yeah. Yeah, sort of. Thanks to Jeff Hauser and Joaquin Nagel for that. All right, David, before we talk about the aforementioned Hope Hicks, let's take a quick break. Hey guys, I'm Mark Titus. And I'm Dave Frazier. And we are the hosts of One Shining Podcast. It is March. Check your calendars. It's true. March Madness is coming up. We're here to talk about all things college basketball. If you like FBI investigations, <laughs> if you like teams that are on the bubble and think they belong in even though they have like 16 losses come check out one shining podcast if you like buzzer beaters buzz williams being buzzed watching basketball those are all three things you can do and you can listen to us we're going to talk about everything that happens in the ncaa tournament it's going to be great we're going to be here all month please subscribe to one shining podcast check all of our, our stuff out tate has done some very disgusting things for money in the past yes. and he he is desperate more to for come. more subscribers mm-hmm. so he doesn't have to return to his old life so please 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 subscribe to our pod check us out we're having a lot of fun this March. Uh, you can get us wherever you find your podcast, Apple, Stitcher, SoundCloud. I, I'm a Google Play guy. Google Play doesn't get enough love when people do this. List. And Spotify. People and are Spotify, on Spotify now, so. so go check it out. Our second topic today, David, is let's call it hope for the best. Is that is that pun been done yet? Yeah, I think it's I think it's safe to say all of the puns have been done. All right. It's done, but it's been done less than the other. So I'm going to go with it. Last Wednesday, Maggie Haberman of the New York Times broke the news at Hope Hicks who is Donald Trump's fourth White House communications director, is leaving. She's been with Trump longer than any aide or confidant in the White House and was the source of moral support uh, as much as anything. She was also someone who helped grease the wheels with the White House press corps. So, Hope Hicks leaves. Does this change anything fundamentally, do you think, or not fundamentally, (laughs) about the turbulent relationship between... Trump and the press. I think it will. No one's mission statement's changing, obviously. I don't think, you know, and and certainly I don't think there were, you know, people went easy on Trump or on Hope Hicks because of her existence. But I certainly think that there was a degree to which she was uh, the closest thing to an avatar or a sort of, you know, novelistic protagonist that was in the White House for a lot of people. I mean, there was also, there there were numerous instances of I mean, she literally provided access uh, yes. to Donald Trump on, for, for many journalists. And so there was that, you know, very, like I said, very literal uh, way in which she, you know, allowed them a way in. Um, but I do think that I do think that there was I think for all of the sort of slack that people or you know, the the the, the fire that she takes on Twitter. Um, I think there's a, there's a large amount of sympathy for her as mysterious as she is. You know, people are looking I think in some sense, people are always looking for the explanation, the the, expl- the the thing that explains Hope Hicks 
in a very sympathetic way. Yeah. So let's talk about how she has cultivated, consciously or not, that air of mystery, right? Mm-hmm. She has, I believe Brian Stelter said this week, never given a television or radio interview about Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. When Olivia Nuzzi goes from, at that point with GQ, goes to profile her last year, mm-hmm. she, Hope Hicks will not talk to Olivia Nuzzi on the record about Hope Hicks, but she will usher her in, usher her into Donald Trump's office yeah. where Donald Trump will talk to Nuzzi about Hope Hicks with Hicks sitting there. <laughs> with Hicks in the room. That's a great, that's a great scene. <laughs> it's amazing, right? She was like sort of, she reminded me of those, remember when he was still doing The Apprentice and it was... Carolyn and George, who were his like functionaries, who brought out like she was like the perfect self-effacing aide, right? Uh She didn't want she didn't want attention. Yeah. She just wanted to work for Donald Trump. She wanted Trump to be his own spokesman. Yeah. And that's got to be a source of why he liked her as much as anything. There's so many people obviously scrambling for a book deal, CNN deal, whatever. Yeah. She wasn't. No, and certainly Trump. I mean, Trump must like that sort of thing, right? I mean, just look at the, he, yeah. the, those two people you mentioned are the only like B-level stars on a major reality TV show that no one ever said let's give them a spinoff. You know, I mean, that, these are the sort of <laughs> personalities that Trump courts. You know, but the, um, but yeah, no, I, I think that I think that she, um, you know, you can say that she had remarkable restraint, but I mean, I think part of it was just that she knew exactly what. Um, you know, she she knew what she needed to do to get by in that White House in a way that some people were either were unaware of or incapable to do, incapable of doing. I mean, if you would ask Steve Bannon, he would have answered, he would have told you that the Hope Hoax playbook was the way to go, and then he can't, he you know, he couldn't resist getting in front of every microphone or accepting every you know glowing profile that was that was sent his way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They had totally different approaches. So some of the Hope Hicks backstory: she was an SMU grad. Mm-hmm. According to the New York Times, as a young model, she appeared on the covers of young adult paperbacks, including It Girl. As a former book cover designer, I, I am very familiar with that part of her biography. Worked for Ivanka. Mm-hmm. Uh, goes into the Trump organization and then later to the Trump campaign. Sam Nunberg, who's in the news today for uh, being in trouble, called her a hopesickle. <laughs> you know, there was a, a – did you see the SNL sketch this week where she was uh, kind of saying goodbye on Weekend Update? Yes, I did. It's kind of a ditzy uh, person. You know what? I really am going to miss all my friends from my semester abroad at the White House. Oh. So if you wouldn't mind, I, I kind of want to read a statement I prepared. Oh, sure. Some people dance into our lives and quickly go, but they always leave footprints on our hearts and fingerprints on Russian documents. Oops. <laughs> to Kellyanne, you taught me that a strong woman can run a campaign and win. And you showed me what I could turn into if I stick around too long. You're like the human version of those pictures of black lungs on cigarette boxes. It's funny because I think this point, her departure points out something about Trump White House, especially with its relationship with the media. The Trump White House is not a professional place, not a professional environment, no, right? Not at all. Um, it's, it was you know, filled with hangers-on and pals and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so what they've attempted to do is fill it with professionals. And the question is whether it's better if you have a president and Donald who is like Donald Trump to have people constantly trying to professionalize him who then he tries to fire or humiliate in the national press or if you just have the Hope Hicks model of somebody that's like, I like this person, I'm not threatened by this person, this person basically lets me do whatever I want. Yeah. And so we're just going to roll with that. And I don't know what the answer, I don't know what the best case scenario for Trump slash America is yeah. with those two models, but obviously they're in the midst of a transition between those two and trying to f- figure out what POTUS will tolerate and which model he'll actually roll with. And uh, yeah, I mean, there, it was the, the the kind of reporting that, that surrounded uh, Hicks, you know, announcing her resignation, I thought was sort of, I mean, was was it was very interesting. Obviously, there there was the story of her testifying before Robert Mueller and uh, and professing that she had told some white lies along the way. As, white as, lies, yeah. Yeah, um, which I'm sure did not get the uh, response that she was hoping for from the, from, you know, other, from lawmakers and the media at large. Um, and there was one report that, that her resignation was immediately preceded by Trump reaming her out about talk, about saying white lies, you know, talk, the white lies bit to the Mueller investigation. Um, and that she was in tears and and one could easily imagine something like that leading to your resignation, one's resignation. Um, but 
you know, I mean, it's it it does it does raise a lot of you know necessary questions about what's the best way for this White House and this country to function. Um, it's you know it's fun in a certain sort of like Twitter jokey sort of way to to see you know for, to to watch dysfunction played out in real time in just about any play you know whether it's the White House or a rival you know website or something like that. But you do sort of get. Uh, it do, it does engender a certain anxiety when you actually sit down and start trying to figure out who, as as Saturday Night Live joked in Weekend Update as well, like who actually is working at the White House right now. Yeah, and the Mueller thing is interesting, right? Because part of the reason she survived for so long with Trump is that she didn't have to go out and publicly do things, right? Right. Like Sean Spicer has to go out and humiliate himself about mm-hmm. the crowd size of the inauguration. So he immediately loses all credibility. He's he's becomes a laughing stock, and you just know he's not going to be in the long. She never has to speak publicly, or she just yeah. decides not to speak publicly. So now then she goes in front of Mueller and makes and makes a mistake, at least in Trump's eyes. Yeah, and all of a sudden it's like, uh oh, you know he can he <clears throat> can hold her to something. Mm-hmm. He can be mad, and that was just an interesting thing. I was also just to put this in perspective of where we are with Donald Trump right now, Washington Post piece last week where the paper said, Mr. Trump is now a president in transition at times angry and increasingly isolated. Yeah. He fumes in private that just about every time he looks up at the television screen, the cable news headlines are tripping in another scandal. So concerned are those around Mr. Trump that some of the president's oldest friends have been urging one another to be in touch. Friends are increasingly concerned about his well-being, worried that the president's obsession with cable commentary and perceived slights is taking a toll. Pure madness, lamented one exasperated ally. Well, that's the sort of the 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 second act of the thing I was just talking about with you know him re- reaming her out. Is that after she put in her notice? That's when like the tariff announcement came out, right? <laughs> I mean, he was just like after between that and and you know the the Jared stuff, um, and you know he just he just sort of was determined to. I don't know, make a splash, change the conversation. I don't know what it was. It is striking, though. The one thing that that Jared Kushner and Hope Hicks have in common is I feel like I see their faces so frequently and have no idea what either of them sounds like. (laughs) I actually Googled Jared. I I did a YouTube search for Kushner last week just to hear his voice and was totally caught off guard. You know, I mean, it's a very it's it's amazing that what it sound like. It's just very sort of reedy, very high. It's Mm. it's I mean, not. you know, it's not a terrible voice, but Didn't I sound think like James Earl Jones or no, something like that. No, no, that's that's exactly what I was imagining, <laughs> James Earl Jones. But then, no, but it was just, uh, you know, it just not not what I was expecting. When you see somebody's face so many times, you sort of have to imagine a voice where their uh, where their real voice should be. You mentioned the terrorist bit, so to back up, that's on Thursday. Everybody shows up at the White House. This is just to give an idea of what it's like to be a press representative for Donald Trump. Nobody knows his position on this, according to the New York Times. Then he goes into this meeting and is asked by a reporter, hey, <laughs> what do you think about this? And then he just blurts out. It'll be 25% for steel. It'll be 10% for aluminum. You know, it's one of those things we've talked about this in various iterations, but it's just, it's, Hope Hicks probably solved a problem, which is it's impossible to be a press representative for Donald Trump, yeah. right? You don't, you can't, spin his message because you don't know what his message is, mm-hmm. right? You, It's hard to have good relationships with the press because he is just railing against the press. But what she figured out, at least was able to survive or get along by doing during the campaign is Trump is contemptuous of the press, but also sort of weirdly available. Yes. At least he was until the Russia thing yeah. really heated up. So, you know, somebody calls up and she says, here, I can get you into the office right now. I can put you in the phone. I remember this. I was just thinking about this last night, but like, I did a piece last year on Trump and sports yeah. in April and just sent, you know, the courtesy email to the White House, you know, the the before the piece went up. Um, it might have literally been info at White House press office. <laughs> I have no idea. It was just a send piece like, you know, if yeah. you want to talk about anything, I'm I'm happy to talk. And like an hour later, Hope Hicks called. Wow. The ringer. And was just like, you know, hey, you know, let me let me let me hear what you got, you know. Okay. Um, well, you, I mean, you mentioned availability. It's <laughs> like, okay. That's great. That's insane. You mentioned availability. I mean, it's wonderful uh, for relationships with the press. You mentioned that Trump is sort of available. I mean, one of the, you know, the 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 part right before um, the conversation you mentioned in the Olivia Nuzzi profile was that they, she, Hope Hicks led Nuzzi into the Oval Office and Trump was, was it, no, no, was it, this was Trump Tower. This is before, right? Before, it was before he was, That's he, right. he won the election. Um, and he was sitting at his desk with, you know, no computer, no papers, no pen, no nothing. And no he beat, just, no device. just sort of looked up and said, oh, well, right. And then they went and did this thing. 
But you oh, have, you. Yeah, exactly. But you have you imagine that like you know it's it's sort of little wonder that 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 people in Hope Hicks's job get just keep getting you know drummed out because imagine just the level of work and management it takes to, uh, I mean, if your boss is literally doing nothing unless you're in the room asking him what he's doing, you know, or like directing him to do something else, what like what, I don't know, it's, that's got to be a lot of work. It's really amazing. It's the only the only president of the United States who just was his own is his own spokesman and has always been his own spokesman. Yeah. And the only key is just leading people into the room, and then here we go. Yeah, I have no idea how long this interview is going to be. I have no idea what he's going to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Bar- it's like Barbara Streisand the other day, you know, the clone dog or whatever. You just uh, once you get in, you're you know, who knows what will happen, right? Riches away. All right, David, our final topic. Let's call this one lack of institutional control. The story is now so complicated. <laughs> I'm just going to read from the Deadspin item written by Patrick Redford last Thursday. Quote, last Friday, which is February 23rd, ESPN's Mark Schleyback reported that Sean Miller, Arizona's basketball coach, had been caught on FBI wiretaps discussing a $100,000 payment for DeAndre Aiden's signature. After the report was published, Schleyback went on SportsCenter and said the call took place in 2017. After Arizona writers and fans raised concerns about the timeline, ESPN issued a correction and stated the call took place in 2016. And then this went through various things. And then ESPN issued another correction, backtracking on their February 25th correction, saying, no, 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 the call was in 2017. Yeah. This is all important because DeAndre Ayton committed in 2016. Right. Right. So it couldn't, the call, then all of a sudden. Anyway, SI's legal analyst, Michael McCann, now has a story citing a source close to the investigation saying that, in fact, ESPN reported incorrectly and the calls don't involve DeAndre and that Sean Miller didn't do anything wrong. At least in this case, I think there's like a five foot view of this. Yes, and there's like yeah. a thirty thousand. So let's let's pull back the controls and take this plane up to thirty thousand feet. Yeah, steer away. Let's start with a question posed by Redford's Deadspin colleague Barry Pacheski. Who gives a shit? Yeah, right. Do we care about NCA scandals? And if you write about an NCA scandal, shouldn't there just be a paragraph, the mandatory paragraph near the top of the piece? It's like this is why this is important. This is why this is why rule breaking in this case, a lot of rule breaking in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of and a lot of crimes in the world too, right? But like this is why this is important and these should see the light of day in a highly pushed and publicized piece. I think that's really that's a really good way to look at it. I mean, I on the one hand, um I would say the vast majority of people who are reporting on this situation uh, well, I, maybe not the vast majority. I would say a healthy majority probably would would tell you if pressed that they believe that college athletes should be paid or should have some sort of compensation. I don't know. You don't know if it's a majority. A, a chunk of them would say would tell you the that. people who are actually writing breaking the news. Sure. I, I don't know. I think it's I think it's maybe fifty fifty. I, I I might travel in some you know to to uh, left leaning circles then. But I but but I it, you know there are a lot yeah. of those people. The point I want to make is that. The story, the story on its face is about a coach uh, paying a hundred thousand dollars to land a play. The you know this top recruit, right? But the story beneath that, the you know the real meat of the story, and I think this is what you were getting at. If this story was told, you know, ten years ago, twenty years ago, the story is this coach is breaking these insane rules. I mean, th- this coach is denigrating the game, right? This coach, yes. th- this coach is, and this player is corrupting a, the spirit of college. Athletics. Yeah. And this, yeah, exactly. And of then, amateurism. And, and that, that's the big one of amateur, man. I mean, amateurism, if, if you have a, you know, a, a New York times login, just go look up the word amateurism <laughs> back in like the, just the early 20th century. It is, it is a hilarious, a hilarious line of op-ed sports related arguments. But the, um, but but the the new story, I mean, the story now is, look at this symptom of a terrible, broken system, right? Wouldn't you? I mean, wouldn't you? That's that's the that's the way that I think when Barry says, "Who gives a fuck?" That would be, I mean, that would be the the, the argument for giving a fuck. So, yes, that's correct. But I think there's there's a lot of intellectual confusion on that point, right? I think if you want to find that point expressed really well, mm-hmm. you know, go to Mark Titus's column here yeah, in The Ringer fantastic. last week, where he says explicitly, I'm rooting for all the scandals and dirty laundry to come down mm-hmm. because that will force the NCAA to say, we cannot have a system where players are not paid, right? Yeah. And then we have to start paying the players. But I'd say that's a fairly unusual, I'd still say that's a kind of an outlier attitude in this thing. Yeah. I think there's a lot of people, see, 
The problem with NCAA scandals from a sports writing point of view is there's always a lot of cognitive dissonance because everybody hates the NCAA. Yes. But in my journeys on the message boards of America, I find that half the people hate the NCAA because they think the players should be paid. And half the people hate the NCAA because they don't think the NCAA is enforcing its amateurism rules harshly enough. Right. These are the opposite arguments. Yes. They are totally the, they don't like those, these people don't agree on anything other than they hate the governing body. Yeah. And I sort of think that's in this, too. Everybody's like, look at this. This is unbelievable. But I don't I don't I don't know that there is a I don't know that there is like an agreement underneath it. I just don't know. I haven't. And again, part of that's part of why I say this. I don't I haven't heard the people who are writing this stuff really address this. You know, Pete Thamel wrote that huge Oklahoma State series in SI a couple years ago. Yeah. There, you know, there was again, where's the paragraph at the top saying this is why it's important that Oklahoma State players may have gotten benefits or, or whatever. Well, last week or, or the week, right. But I mean, very, not long ago, <laughs> Pete Thamlin, <laughs> Pat Forty wrote this piece for Yahoo Sports, uh, detailing that, you know, former NBA agent, Andy Miller and his uh, associate Christian Dawkins <clears throat> were sort of, you know, they, they had all these, uh, they, they had the Excel spreadsheets basically that just outlined every $15 uh, you know, loan that they had given to various, um, pre-collegiate athletes, uh, I, presumably in the hopes of like, you know, courting good favor so that they might be able to represent them someday. Um, but, you know, it was funny because when that story dropped and, and again, the, there are varying points of view, even at the, in the ringer office, it, you know, when that story dropped into Slack, you could, you could feel, you know, this, like you could feel everybody breathe in, you know, we were, we're like ready for this big thing. And then the then immediately people are everyone's just asking what, where the story is like where where like where is the there that's supposed to be there or that's implied by the headline. Yep. Um, I think that I think that you know I, I don't want to get too conspiratorial, but they're you know for this and the ESPN piece that had has had they've had so much trouble just verifying the reporting. Um, and you can by the way, just a quick aside about the ESPN piece. It, the ESPN did not respond to questions about, you know, the sourcing in a way that made it sound like any of them had heard the audio of this phone call. Right. And that's I'm not saying that's a problem in, in report. That's a journalistic, you know, error. But that's problematic when you're getting basic dates wrong. Yeah. Well, it's not. Yeah. And it's I think if we looked at some of like, you know, straight news stories uh-huh. about investigations and stuff like yeah. that or, you know, or emails that have been sent and sure. the person the emails have been described to the reporter rather mm-hmm. than seen. It's not totally unusual. It's yeah. not totally out of bounds. Sure. As people on message boards would probably tell you it is. They haven't seen the emails, but you're walking out on a plank. Yeah. Right. You better really trust the person. You're opening yourself up. And I think that, you know, I, the one thing that that, that that the Yahoo, I mean, one of many things that the Yahoo piece and the ESPN piece have in common is that the source is clearly, I mean, not clearly, the source is likely, you know, on the investigative side. And you got to wonder why these things are getting leaked out the way they are. Is it just because they they know they don't have much of a national case, or is it because you know they really want to? I don't even I don't know what the what the what the kindest way to look at that is. I don't either. I think the, I think the, I think the motives thing and Titus raised the motives thing too, like the motives of the leakers. It's something really interesting to think about. Yeah, it's also pretty unanswerable sure. at this point Absolutely. because there are lots of reasons. Um, some of them may be like altruistic, or at least the person's thinking they're doing. Some of them may be you know. Mm-hmm payback or what it's very hard to say of course i say the one thing when you talk about the way this thing landed in yeah. all of our laps you know, both in actual slack and the slack of the world yeah it's it's a Pichesky asked this what is the purpose of any straight college scandal reporting other than shaming players for trying trying to earn a tiny fraction of the money they're earning for their schools in the nca here's the answer career advancement and has been forever. And we as readers of sports news have been conditioned to read NCAA scandal bombshell stories Mm -hmm. because that gets reporters raises. It gets you out of the press box and into the courtroom, right? It makes it a more quote unquote serious story. That's exactly it. That's what these guys are surfing off of, right? This is big stuff. We joked around the office about 4 p.m. being scoops o'clock. That's the time when like Maggie Haberman (laughs) would drop her Trump or, you know, her Trump breaker of the day or whatever. Um, but there is a sort of larger conversation about the sort of scoopification of journalism right now. And it's nothing new. But the way that Twitter and, and you know, ex- exclusivity drives profit 
the commoditization yeah. of the scoop. It's a thing. It's and, a scoop. And and yeah, and to be able to put a little scoop, you know, put to, to put the scoop sticker on your football helmet or whatever, that's a big thing for all caps. Uh, yeah, Colon, right? Yes. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I mean, and certainly there's. I mean, that's you 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 feel that permeating all of this reporting. Absolutely, and has been for our whole lives. Sure, I mean, I you know, growing up in Dallas. By the way, people forget the old Southwest Conference. Everybody remembers the SMU thing. It was the thirty for thirty. Yeah, six out of the eight schools in the Southwest Conference in the eighties were on some form of probation. Yeah. Six out of eight. I mean, that's incredible, yeah. right? They were more probation than winning actual bowl games. It felt like. And I remember the two Dallas newspapers just going after each other to break the latest NCAA scandal. Yeah, that was the red meat. That was a scandal. Sure. Like Chris Mortensen made his career partially on breaking an NCAA scandal. Yeah. His was interesting. I'll talk about it in a second. George Dorman, all the, we could just name so many people who that was a career advancement moment because mm-hmm. it showed they were real reporters. Even yeah. if they went on to become insiders or whatever that manifests itself. So I read Mort's book when I was writing about him last year, two years ago now. And what was interesting about his is he found the guy who was giving loans, quote unquote, loans to the players yeah. may have had mob ties. So in his case, the answer to why does this matter was, well, if these guys owe $100,000 to the mob and then they go into the NFL or the NBA in this case, then that could be problematic because like, oh, I can't pay you back. Well, says the mobster, Mm -hmm. let me – let me show you how you can pay me back. Just drop that touchdown pass. Yeah. Right. So all of a sudden they kind of, you know, the the actual play of the sport is corrupted in a way. You're yeah. putting it in, in different hands. Like sure. there, there are re- there are there are reasons in the world yeah. where we might not want players paid by certain people in a certain way. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I just think that's totally I just think that should be explained better. Now now we're in a place that, that should be explained better every time one of these things hits. Yeah, somebody before we get too far away from Sean Miller. I mean, we we should I mean there there could never be a more sort of like just perfect villain for this story too, which makes which makes the reporting, you know, necessarily a little bit like skewed. Yeah, he I mean, was he was our overworked Twitter joke last week with a sweat through the shirt. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's I mean, and he's he's um you know, he's he's got a reputation. You know, whatever he's seen, he's. But regardless of that, he seems like the sort of guy that would be handing out big checks or big bags of cash to basketball players to come play. It was like I mean, it was like great Patino. Yeah, Every, everybody, exactly. it was a lot of Sean Freud. I mean, right? one of these. You're right, and, and and my, you know, my one of my. I'm not a huge Sean Miller fan, just as a college basketball fan, but like, you know, there's a part of me that just watched his press conference, and I was just, and I just kept thinking, you know, in 15 years or 20 years, he's going to be our Sonny Vaccaro. You know, he's going to be the he's going to come. He's going to open up in the future about all this stuff that happened. And we're all just going to kind of welcome him back into the family and you know, just give him big hugs for being a truth teller. I mean, I think that someone at the ringer asked why, you know, whether or not someone was just going to it was just going to open up about it. You know, the best way, you know, the best the, the, the best way forward would be just sunlight on everything. Yeah, we pay players. Now, let's let's figure out a way to make it OK. I think it'd be really, really difficult to do, not just because. Uh, I mean, not not just because it was it's problematic for you and possibly illegal some of the things that you've done for you, but you're sort of, by saying everybody does it, you're sort of implicitly implicating everyone you've ever worked with. Yeah, and that is re- I mean, that's what make that's the real that's that's what makes being Sonny Vaccaro really hard. In, there are all these downsides. The coaching ranks. Yeah, I mean, Sonny 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 didn't have to worry about anything, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Simmons and Titus mentioned this when on the BS podcast the other day, which is that. Like there's this omerta among players. Yeah, players shouldn't care, but they do care because they don't want to get their teammates in trouble and they don't want to go get their college programs in trouble. Yeah, I, I remember this, one of the famous guys was Hartley Dykes, who was a first round pick in the NFL, was a wide receiver at Oklahoma State, mm-hmm. and he's literally been written out of the Oklahoma State program as Reggie Bush was at USC. Yeah, like he didn't exist because he got them in trouble. And you know, there's just like there's there's all kinds of dumb downsides to this. Yeah. I think these stories. I think. This one, let's let's call it in motion, and we'll see what what comes. You know, what is the actual story? What happens with the FBI investigation? What happens with the indictments and everything like that? But so many of these are going to really look so dumb in the future. I mean, the one about the Ohio State about Terrell Pryor selling his Alamo Bowl ring for a so tattoo. Dumb. I mean, like, give me a break. I mean, that yeah. just does. I didn't care at the time, but can any will anybody care in a year, five years, ten years? I mean, about I think, a lot of they're just so silly, and they're all in the players as everybody says they're underpaid. Anyway. I don't. I mean, we could draw we could draw direct lines to any number of political debates that we've discussed on this show before. But the whole, I, I just think for the NCAA, their their argument is just it, it, 
there's no respect for logic in it, right? I mean, they're they're so de- they're they're so determined to uphold the status quo for feel the, for fear the whole thing will be crum- come crum- crumbling down. That you can't something as easy as like let you know letting a football player monetize his YouTube channel just is just seems <laughs> like they have to act like it's beyond the pale for the sake of keeping everything else strung together. I like that we just bring in Condi Rice when we need to fix something, too. It was like on, she was on the college football playoff committee. Yes. Right? Give me Condi Rice. Yeah. A figure of probity. Yeah. She'll figure this out. Yeah. Okay. We can circle back around to ESPN one more time, which is we mentioned this right before we came on the air, but they're in a really bizarre situation. Like Scott Van Pelt on the night that Sean Miller came had his press conference to announce his return was forced to just sort of throw up his hands, you know, I mean, just be like, well, I guess we just have to wait to see what happens. I guess we have to wait for the truth to come out, which is very bizarre. Very bizarre. I mean, I, I don't think that any journalistic entity should ever be in the position of having to show their work. You know, I mean, if it's not if 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 uh, to a point I to, guess. Uh, to, yeah, to a point and this will reveal their sources anyway. Yeah. yeah but this this feels like. But you got to be right. We, yeah. They, they 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 need to be right. It was like this with Mort, you know, with with the flight gate. You know, yeah. it's like it was and, and it's funny because I think, you know, I think Titus even compared this to Deflategate a little bit yeah. where you're going to be. And by the way, college fo- college message boards didn't need Deflategate to just think all national journalists whenever they mentioned they all they have to do is talk about the program disparagingly on air. Say, like, you're not that good. Yeah. And you're evil. Right. I mean, you are the worst person in the world and you will never be forgiven. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> even to go to a scandal takes up like 100. But it's like, you know, with the Mort thing. You know, everybody goes to it's an agenda, it's ESPN, it's all the stuff. Really, it's just it's it's probably an honest mistake. If it's a mistake, it's an honest mistake. Mm-hmm. And the the lesson at the end of the day is just be right. Yeah. Right. It's not it's not all these other things like background noise, right? It's like just be right. Absolutely true. And and you'll protect yourself from that. But yeah, that's I mean, knowing Dick Vitale a little bit, having written about him too. Mm-hmm. The two things Dick Vitale cares about maybe more than anything is on the one hand the sanctity of the old school sanctity of amateurism in college basketball. Yeah. And on the other hand, basketball coaches of which he considers himself part of the fraternity, and yeah. that just pulls him yes. in opposite directions in yeah. this case, right? Sanctity over here, Sean Miller over here. Yeah. Us, am I the only, am I, do I reveal myself as a child of the 90s when I remember Harrison Ford and Patriot Games going, where's Sean Miller? <laughs> I think that's, I would like the FBI investigation to end like that. Oh, that's fantastic. All right, David, that's the press box for this week. We're back next week with more hot media takes. See you later, buddy. See you, man. Welcome back, by the way. Thank you.